We've been studying about Bible authority. And we think Bible authority is such an important subject. We believe it is so critical to all that we do religiously. Think about this, for instance. Just uh, in the last few days, there have been talk about restarting some of the sporting events that have been on hold because of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, A lot of people are anxious to get sports going again. But imagine they start the sports season. Maybe they're going to start baseball again. But every team in the league decides to proceed with a different set of rules. The the rules are all different. No two teams are following the same set of guidelines. How effective would the baseball season be or football or basketball or hockey or anything else if there was not an agreed-upon set of rules and they were interpreted and applied consistently across the board. It'd be impossible. Sports would be impossible. We simply would not be able to go forward. I want to suggest to you that religion is the same way. The problems, the division, the controversy that exists in the religious world because people are not agreeing upon the rules of the game, so to speak. And those rules of the game are what we're talking about when we talk about Bible authority. They are the rules, and they need to be followed. We use expressions like these, speak where the Bible speaks, be silent where the Bible is silent, Uh, do Bible things in Bible ways, call Bible things by Bible names, demand a book, chapter, and verse for everything that is done, Uh, require a thus saith the Lord if we're going to move forward uh, in religious activity. Those are the principles of Bible authority. And for the last number of weeks, I believe this is lesson number seven. And so in the previous six weeks, uh, we have been talking about Bible authority and how to establish Bible authority and how to apply Bible authority. All so very important. But I want to suggest to you in this, I, I believe, will be our final lesson in this rather long series. I want to suggest to you that these very basic principles that we've been talking about, thus saith the Lord, book, chapter, and verse, those principles are under attack. Uh, there are some people, and I'm sad to say there are some even among churches of Christ who want to just throw this all out the window and say it doesn't matter. In fact, that we've made serious mistakes in trying to pursue Bible authority, and they have just suggested that. We're just going to do away with that altogether. Uh, Let let me suggest to you some quotes that illustrate this abandonment of Bible authority. At a Christian college lectureship, it was said, we are so wrapped up in commands, examples, and necessary inferences that we don't find Jesus. Jesus. I'm not saying to put this aside, but the purpose of hermeneutics is not to get the right answers on a whole series of questions. It is to find him. Now, we agree that Jesus is our emphasis. We want to find Jesus. But the idea is that pursuing Bible authority distracts us from being able to find Jesus. I disagree. We'll talk more. At a conference of Christian, so-called Christian scholars, it was said the truth is that biblical theory cannot distill from the current text of the Bible a seamless body of doctrine. And no hermeneutical model can find consistent and widespread approval. Now, just for sake of clarity, we understand that hermeneutics or a hermeneutic model 
is a method of biblical interpretation. Hermeneutics is biblical interpretation. And so this uh, fella is saying that you can't go to the Bible and from it determine a seamless body of doctrine. It's not possible. There's no, there's no hermeneutical model. There's no method of interpretation that allows that to happen. We disagree. In a meeting of several preachers, it was said, nowhere does the New Testament provide explicit scriptural basis for a restoration principle. No text explicitly states that later generations should follow the primitive church or restore it. Get that? We should, there, there's nothing that in the Bible that suggests we should even try to be like the early church was. And then in a published book, one fellow wrote, On Pentecost, the church was not identified by name, organization, worship, or purpose. Such things at best are only secondary. A restoration of those things is no part of restoring the church. The church which the Lord built is a universal, unstructured entity which defies limiting patterns. Did you get that? Uh, pretty straightforward, isn't it? This guy is saying that there, it doesn't matter about name, organization, worship. Even the purpose of the church is not critical. Uh, there are no limiting patterns for the church. Well, I hope that gives you a sense of the fact that the whole concept of Bible authority is under attack. And, and we want to dig a little bit deeper into some of those attacks and show that they are absolutely flawed that these people don't know what they're talking about and that they are completely wrong when they say that we do not need to follow the authority of the New Testament. There are those who argue that there is no pattern and that we should not be trying to establish a pattern to follow when it comes to our work in the church, our worship in the church. That there is no pattern and we shouldn't and we're making a mistake to try and establish a pattern to follow. Look at a couple of quotes at a church lectureship. One man said, are we really looking for a pattern? We have taken acts and tried to make it a prison, a rigid pattern. I reject pattern theology. The scripture is not a book of case law to be cited like a bunch of proof text. I'm not looking for a pattern. I am looking for a person. I don't know how he could have said it any plainer that he rejects the whole notion of a pattern that we ought to follow. At a study seminar, another man said, we must overcome the tendency to read the Bible merely as a body of facts or a blueprint. Wrong. I disagree, don't you? Disagree completely. Because the New Testament actually tells us it is a pattern to be followed. In Romans chapter 6, verse 17, Paul said, God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from that heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. This word form, this form of doctrine, a footnote in the American Standard Version there actually says pattern, a pattern of doctrine. There's a form of doctrine. There's a pattern taught in God's word in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 13 hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus and so although some of the detractors uh, some of the critics say we've missed it and we've been making a big mistake by trying to say that there's a pattern to be imitated actually the word of God says there is a pattern And it must be followed. Uh, 
So this idea of no pattern theology is just wrong. As these critics attack Bible authority, they try to say, well, what is the New Testament anyway? Uh, Is the New Testament just a law book, rigid law book, or is it just a compilation of love letters that have been sent from God to his people? Uh, Let me illustrate it with this quote at a college lectureship. One man said, I deny that the New Testament is a constitution of church law. The New Testament is a collection of love letters, and one does not read love letters as law. The New Testament was never intended to be viewed as a legal brief for the church throughout the ages. Do you see that? Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying the New Testament is just a collection of love letters. And in in love letters, you do not issue commands to be followed. So uh, here's here's a young man, and he's in love with this girl, and he's sending love letters to her. Maybe she's sending love letters back to him. That's what people in love do very often. And so this, this fellow sends a love letter to his girlfriends, and he says, and his love letter says, mow the grass and paint the house. And she sends a love letter back and said, you need to uh, uh, fix the car. You need to uh, seal the driveway. <laughs> I don't know. That wouldn't be love letters, right? Love letters don't contain law necessarily, or rules to follow. And so this guy's saying that the New Testament is just love letters, and love letters don't have rules in them. Love letters don't have commands in them. And we ought to view the New Testament as just a compilation of love letters, not a book of law to follow. Well, again, that's just easily deniable from the Scriptures. In God's dealing with man, he has always emphasized law, rules, and obedience. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3, many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his path. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Actually, here Isaiah was prophesying about the coming times that we now live in. And uh, notice, we will be taught his ways, We will walk in his paths. Out of Zion shall go forth the law. Now, my question to you is, does that mean that God doesn't love us? Because even prophetically, concerning the times that we now live in, in the Christian dispensation, there were ways that we should be taught. There were paths that we should walk in. There was law. Well, but that does that does that negate God's love for us? I suggest to you, absolutely not. In Jeremiah, I think you know this prophetic statement from Jeremiah. It's quoted for us in the New Testament book of Hebrews. But in Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning verse 31, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be to me a people. Again, here Jeremiah is prophesying about our time. What did he say about our time? He said the Lord will put his law in their inward parts, write it in their hearts. Does law contradict love? 
does law exclude love? Do rules say that God doesn't love us? Uh, no, there's still an emphasis, as there always has been with God. He tells people what he wants them to do. But understand, we know this, that when he told us what he wanted us to do, he was telling us that because he wanted to protect us. He knew what was in our best interest. And so certainly his law does not exclude his love for us. In James chapter 1, verse 25, Whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. So who shall be blessed in his deed? The doer of the work, who follows the perfect law of liberty. Uh, again, no contradiction between God's law and God's love. So love Love for God is essential. God loves us. But certainly, that is linked with obedience. Look quickly at a couple quotes from 1 John. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, Hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. Whoso keepeth the word... In him is the love of God perfected. They're there, right together, right? Love and law keeping. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. And so, again, this idea that we have misunderstood the New Testament because we've said it has laws to keep. It's not a law book. It's a love. It's a compilation of love letters, they say. And so they have, they make the two mutually exclusive. It's either law or it's love, love letters. We're saying the New Testament shows it's both, both expressing God's love for us, but also plainly stating his law for us. There is, as, as again, we're talking about those who would attack this notion of Bible authority. We don't need to be trying to look for a pattern. We don't need to be following laws or rules. Those who do that sometimes appeal to what they would identify as a historical critical approach, or maybe that's the way we would describe what they are doing. And here, here's what we mean by that. In a Brotherhood magazine, one man wrote, the Bible was written in another period and from within a culture different from Western civilization. Thus, the meaning of the text to those ancients might be quite different than for a man today. Now, get what he's saying there. I think it's pretty understandable. It was written in another period. Well, that's true, of course. It's written the New Testament was written about 2,000 years ago. The Old Testament... Older than that. And it was in a, a culture different from Western. Well, here we are. We are in Western civilization. This was written to people who lived on the other side of the world, who lived in a different time and in a different culture. That being the case, he says, the text of those, the text to those ancients, to those people who lived so long ago in another part of the world in a different culture, the meaning to them could be quite different than for us today. Get that? And so his argument is you can't really take that and apply it to us because it wasn't even written to us. It was written so long ago to a diff completely different people. What about that? 
I hope that you agree with me. That's a very dangerous prospect right there because it basically throws the door open to do whatever you want and there's no limit. But the fact of the matter is that Jesus taught that his principles were age lasting in Matthew 28, beginning verse 19. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. Part of the Great Commission was to teach those who were converted to observe all things. So you go, you teach, you baptize, you make disciples. But then you continue teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And so a part of the Great Commission was teaching to observe all things. When did those things change? Uh, and how would we know? That they have changed. I believe it's accurate to observe that God's wisdom is seen in the timelessness of his message to mankind. That the all wise God was able to reveal a message. Yes, it's old. The newest parts of it are nearly 2000 years old. But it was revealed in such a fashion that we can still understand it. And still apply it, still put it into practice. You know what these people are saying? These who want to go to this historical, critical approach. They're saying God wasn't smart enough to make a message that would apply to all men of all time. I don't want to go there to you. But that's basically what they're saying. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26. Concerning the observance of the Lord's Supper. It is said there. As oft as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. So what do you do? Well, you keep doing this until the Lord comes, right? Isn't that what Paul was saying there? Uh, Well, wait a minute. These people who say, well, it, it was for a different people of a different time. Would you apply that concept to the observance of the Lord's Supper? Because this says you're going to keep observing the Lord's Supper. You're going to eat the bread and drink the cup till he comes. Well, if we're saying this was written to a different people of a different time, could could we say that this also then is unnecessary? How far are you going to go with that? I'm going to tell you, you open that door. There is no stopping place. Could we even change the observance of the Lord's Supper if it is, in fact, the case that the, the New Testament was written to a different people of a different time? Be careful. Be careful what you allow, because if you allow that, there's no stopping place. There are those among these critics of Bible authority who would attack what we would refer to as the law of exclusion. Now, let me give you a quote, and then we'll try to explain what we mean by that. In a sermon, a preacher said, silence may be coincidental rather than intentional. Silence is not inherently prohibitive. Rather, silence preeminently meant freedom for our restoration fathers as it should for us today. Mm, Wait a minute. Silence meant freedom. If the Bible is silent, do whatever you want to do. He's wrong about that, by the way. The restoration people, the people in in the restoration movement did not believe that. Now, some in the Reformation movement, which was hundreds of years earlier, People like Martin Luther and others who were in the Reformation movement, some of them did hold the view that silence gives liberty to act. The Restoration Fathers didn't believe that. 
the Campbells, Barton W. Stone, others who were instrumental in trying to restore the New Testament church did not take the view that silence meant freedom. In a more practical way, what this guy is saying here is the old argument, the Bible doesn't say not to. It doesn't say not to. And if it doesn't say don't do this, then we can do it. We're free to act. If the Bible is silent, we are free to act. And therefore, they they want to exclude this rule of silence. They, they want to exclude the law of exclusion. If the Bible is silent, they want to say we can do whatever we want. Now, is that really true? I would encourage you to ask Noah about that. Is it true that you, if the Bible's silent, you can do whatever you want to do? Remember, we won't take time to read all this, but you know the story of Noah. In Genesis chapter 6, beginning verse 13, God said to Noah, Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Now, we can go on and read more details there about the ark he was building. We'll just stop right there. Build thee an ark of gopher wood. He didn't mention any other kind of wood. He didn't say, don't use oak, don't use pine, don't use cherry, don't use walnut. He didn't give any other information about wood. But the fact that he specified gopher wood and was silent on all other kinds of wood, any right-thinking person understands that that silence on other kinds of wood excluded Noah from being able to use any other kind. So the law of exclusion is certainly a principle taught in the New Testament. In the book of Leviticus, you could ask Nadab and Abihu if you want to about whether God's silence means anything. Remember in Leviticus 10, beginning verse 1, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord. Notice, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them and they died before the Lord. Ask Nadab and Abihu, if, if, if God is silent on a matter, does that mean you're free to act? In other words, God had had instructed where the proper fire for their incense censers should come from. He didn't, he didn't mention other sources, but he had obviously mentioned the proper source. Did the silence therefore authorize them to act? Clearly not, and they paid with their lives. And so some of these critics want to reject the law of exclusion, and that law of exclusion is the idea... They would promote the idea, if it doesn't say not to, then you can. We say that is absolutely wrong. Finally, let me suggest to you that these folks, what they really mean to convey is the idea that we should be preaching the man, not the plan. The man, of course, is Jesus. And we've already looked at some quotes in our lesson tonight in which the emphasis should be, they say, on Preaching Jesus, finding Jesus. We should be looking for Jesus. We shouldn't be looking for a pattern to follow. Preach the man and not the plan. I'm sad to say that some of our own brethren are going there. At a Christian college conference, one man said, we have tended to be text-centered rather than Christ-centered. And we will not be able to overcome our identity crisis unless we shift our focus to the person of Christ, not the Bible. We have become enamored by the written word to the point of becoming oblivious to the living word. The restoration movement has been a doctrine-exalting movement rather than a Christ-exalting movement directed at the heart of the unchurched. 
The idea of adhering to the written word is noble, but it is fraught with as many problems as there are people viewing the word. Wow, I think we could spend a long time just taking this quote apart and analyzing. It is scary. I want to tell you, that is really a scary thing. So, we need to focus on Christ, not the Bible. Focus on Christ, not the Bible. Teach the man, not the plan. Now, some of our denominational friends have been arguing that for a long time. Now, unfortunately, liberal folks among our brethren are beginning to recite that mantra. Preach the man, not the plan. Our denominational folks have said that we make a mistake when we stress something, for instance, like baptism for the remission of sins. Stop preaching that doctrine, they say. Stop preaching that. Just preach about Jesus. Preach Jesus. We can be united on the person of Jesus. But when you all start preaching your doctrine of baptism for the remission of sins, that's divisive. Don't do that, they argue. Preach the man, not the plan. Well, now we see our own brethren doing this. Focus on Jesus, not on the Bible. Notice, he says, he, he, he indicates that there's a irreconcilable conflict between doctrine exalting and Christ exalting. That, that we have been guilty of exalting doctrine. We should be exalting Christ. You can't do both things simultaneously. And so preach the man, not the plan. He, and again, he actually attacks the wisdom and, and uh, divine power of God by suggesting that you can't, there's no way to adhere to the written word because there are as many problems as there are people viewing the word. Get it? In other words, the, this, this revealed word of God is inadequate. It's, it's not possible that we could all come to it and understand it. God couldn't, God wasn't capable of revealing it in such a way that we could all come to an agreement on the word. Therefore, just preach about Jesus and stop exalting the word. What about that? I, I want to kind of challenge your recollection because I think most all of you know this argument very well. How would you address the person who is saying, preach the man, not the plan? Where would you go? Give you a minute to think about that. I would go to Acts 8, wouldn't you? In Acts 8, the case of the Ethiopian eunuch. You know it well. In Acts chapter 8, verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came to a certain water and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Here's your answer, right? What did Philip preach to the eunuch? He preached unto him Jesus. He preached the man. But what did that preaching of Jesus include? Included the necessity of baptism. Do you see that? You can't preach the man without the plan. The man and the plan are completely together. You can't separate them. And so this is a flawed notion that says we ought to preach the man and not the plan. Well, there are five ways in which this principle, these very valuable and necessary principles of Bible authority are under attack. Again, and this is not just by very far left-wing 
denominational groups who are attacking Bible authority, although they certainly do, and, and they've been doing that for a long time. What's really, really frightening about this is that those who identify as members of the churches of Christ are saying these outlandish things. Well, we need to, we need to be aware they're doing that. But I'm going to tell you what we need to be more determined to do is make sure that we are committed, completely committed to Bible authority as we work together to serve God. Bible authority, it is so very important. Well, we've been studying that for now seven weeks, I believe. This is lesson seven as we've been addressing the principles of Bible authority. We've been doing this all during this coronavirus shutdown period. We've had this series going on Sunday night. Lord willing, we'll go to something different next Sunday evening. But I hope that you agree that these observations, this information uh, is so very important for us and for all. We need to know it. We need to understand it. We need to apply it. And we need to teach it to others. And so I hope that our lessons have been helpful. Wouldn't it?